I actually should have started with this. Um, I was as you're talking, I'm like, I don't know if we've even defined what a spiritually attuned go-getter is. I mean, how, how would you yeah. define that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I am that, but maybe I am. You don't know? <laughs> I, if you have to ask, then you're not one, John. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This is John Turney, and I'm here with uh, my brother, Nat. Uh, go ahead and say hello there, Nat. Hello there, Nat. <laughs> We're gonna I did change that. it. We're I didn't gonna, just you, say hello. You, you, you just do it. the word there, right? so you got a there. I know. I know. Don't, be, don't be so pedantic, John. It's going to happen. Pedantic. All these big yeah. words today. Well, you know, I went to right, college. Well, we are here <laughs> today <laughs> with Meg Calvin. And I'm going to read you her bio. Meg Calvin is an Amazon best-selling author, wife, mom, speaker, podcaster, and coach who helps her fellow spiritually attuned go-getters find confidence and certainty in who they were meant to be. Meg is the author of two books, The Blue Bonnet Child and I Am My Own Sanctuary. She is the co-host of the Listening Chair podcast and now has another podcast called Uproarious Profundity. And that's fun to say. And I actually got it right the first time. I'm 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 impressed with myself. You are you a hundred percent did. That's yeah. amazing. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Meg. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. How are you? I am so well. I'm I'm in a better place now that I can see your room, the blue, the space paint behind you. I wish the viewers could see <laughs> <laughs> this awesome room that you're in. This is actually uh, this. Uh, my son just recently moved out, and this is his. This was his bedroom for the majority of his life in, in this house, and wow. uh, it's a space themed. You can't see the sides, but the walls are chalkboard paint from basically four feet down. And the top is stainless steel, so you could put magnet and whatever he wants up. Oh my gosh! It is now my podcast room and a workout room. Yeah, um, wow. you can't see it, but there's a whole weight set over here. But anyway, we're getting way off topic now. <laughs> that's a that's a great. I don't I don't think so. That's a great use of space. So I think that's going to come up again in the conversation when we talk <laughs> about church. I feel like I'm watching like some kind of like '80s era rock video that like you produced <laughs> in your basement. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, um, I, I just want to get kind of right into this and, and cause we got, I think we have a lot to talk about. I, um, I, I was kind of going over your book again and just coming up with some ideas to talk about, but I mean, I don't even know, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not even sure if you ever use the word deconstruction in your book. Um, if you do, it's very minimal. Yes. So what I find interesting is, um, the, the, your view of deconstruction. So, I mean, before we even get into that though, I'd like to get a little bit of your background and how you even got to the point of writing this book. So if you could just kind of give us a background of your faith and, and how that, how that kind of, kind of morphed into the, the point where you're writing this book. Yes. This might not sound very coherent because I'm going to try to keep it brief because like all of your guests and you, you, both of you and most likely the majority of your listeners, this is a very long story to tell about how we got to where we are with our views of God and church and our role in all of it. So I might be different than some of your guests because I was raised mainline Protestant United Methodist as United Methodist through and through. So I began to feel a nudge to preach when I was 13. And even in Eastern Texas, I was pushed toward the pulpit and supported by 
clergymen and clergywomen and mentors. And I was a church addict from a very young age. So before that, I sang in the church choir from age six onward. So I had no social life in my childhood or teenage years, except and early twenties, except for church. It was my, (laughs) it was my everything. I found affirmation and love there that I might've missed at home during certain seasons of my family. So I would say a lot of my, a lot of other views around atonement or salvation, or I'm trying to use big words that I haven't used in a while. The eschaton, (laughs) I did not, (laughs) I did not have to really deconstruct a lot of those views. Um, my addiction to church led, of course, to me going to the ordination track in the, the Methodist church. So when I was 17, I began literally going down the this this track to become a senior pastor. So I was visiting seminaries, went to college. I interned at a Methodist church um, from age, I was barely 18. I, I worked a little bit on staff for a church in Texas when I was 17, was getting paid to do music ministry. And, um, and then when I was 18, uh, moved to college to Kansas, got on a church staff as an intern and worked in that church for 15 years. And that, that fishbowl, <laughs> as you know, from being pastors or being a worship music leader, you know, it's a fishbowl. It can be where, and so there really is no, no, no line there. It's really hard to establish boundaries of your personal and professional life. And as we say in the high church world, your parishioners feel like they're your besties because ministry, when it's done right, it's relational. And so um, that kind of, that story was the stage of the the second book about this, this weird holy roller teenager who was addicted to the church, ended up working on a church staff from age 17 to 32 and gave way too much power, her own power as a divine co-creator away to other louder Christians, and then reached a point of burnout where she needed to take that power back. And um, so that, 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 that birthed the book. But I guess my, my biggest areas of deconstruction that I had to do was around relationships. The biggest thing was as a good little Christian, <laughs> I was operating from the place of I needed to love everyone with the love of the Lord. Everyone I met, it was my job and only my job. And no one else can do it except for me. I had to be their savior. I had to point them to Jesus. But really, I was living out of this big Messiah complex. And I know in another interview with Jason Elam talked a little bit about that too. So I had to deconstruct my view of relationships, that it was okay for, by God, it was okay for me to simply tolerate someone with the love of the Lord. That was okay. And it was okay for me to cuss and cry and rip cloths and cuss someone out in my prayer life if they authentically annoyed or hurt me. So that was my biggest, my biggest deconstruction was, I guess, I guess John Wesley, the, one of the founders of Methodism would call it my social holiness. So not my person, my personal holiness like my prayer life, my study, the sacraments, those didn't need to be deconstructed or my views of hell or the lack there of it, <laughs> my views of the atonement, none of those needed to be deconstructed, but my views of relationships and how I carried those out as a, as a good little Christian needed to be deconstructed. So that I think covers everything. 
Maybe. <laughs> well, it, it absolutely doesn't, but right, um, right. <laughs> but it's good. It's a good start, and you you are right. Um, I think you're really you're absolutely right. Then in, in that your story is unique, and 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 that all of ours is unique. Um, right. I uh, John and I both grew up in a variety of non-denominational Protestant churches, right? And I tell this story a lot, and I want to get your kind of get your feel on it. But I was in my thirties before I ever went to a, a quote-unquote liturgical church service. And so I ended up, and you might be, you, as a Methodist, you're probably aware of, of what a walk to Emmaus is. Oh, yes. Very, very, especially in the Dallas area. Very aware. Yeah. <laughs> so I went on a walk. To, I was dragged kicking and screaming on this spiritual retreat, which if, if you don't know, <laughs> listeners at home, um, it's a, if it's done right, let me preface it by saying if it's done right, and I believe the way that we did it in our community was pretty good, but it's a very ecumenical, a very stripped down, open, three-day conversation about God. The merest of Christianities is what I, I like to call it. Mm. I mean, it is pretty much focusing on Jesus and let's drop all the other pretense. Um, I, I went and was aghast that, it, first of all, it met in a Catholic retreat center. So I'm already pissed <laughs> off. You know, what am I doing hanging around a bunch of godless papists, right? <laughs> so I, I already feel like the room's like demon-filled. There's crucifixes <laughs> everywhere. You know, I keep expecting, you know. And then I met the bishop, who's the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. And, and I spent 72 hours with these people. Um, the reason that it comes up is 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 that in um, there was so much toxic theology mm-hmm. that John and I had to deconstruct. And I have it, I find it startling that when I talk to somebody raised in Methodism mm-hmm. or I talk to somebody raised as a, you know, maybe um, Episcopalian, um, they look at me like I'm crazy when I talk about things like the rapture. And they're like, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. Oh, oh, you, you mean you don't believe that, that God literally beat the hell out of Jesus on, on Good Friday? Uh, no, that's nuts. That's crazy. So, <laughs> oh, and, and don't, let me, don't let me wax over um, the fact that they are so, for the most part, pro-woman. Mm, right. And so they ordained the crap out of women. Yeah. Uh, I went, I got heavily involved in Emmaus for a long time. And every, every one of those events that I worked, man, we had female clergy on every team all mm. the time it was required. And so this whole concept of, of that. So do you think that that set you up to be more empowered as you like went in to explore your own faith that you didn't feel like you had to fill a specific role? Oh, totally. One, 100%. And not only was I, was that not part of my story in church, but it also in my family, my grandparents, my parents, my powerhouse aunt, who was like a second mom to me, who owned her own beauty salon down the street. There was, uh, there were limiting beliefs like all of us have, but mine were never about gender. I I always felt that I could do, it was more about my talent and my character than my anatomy. And I'm thankful for that. I know that's not true for every woman who feels called to serve in a spiritual way, but that, that was true for, for my story that I, I knew, I knew what I was called to and felt supported. Yeah. So, yeah. And I remember. Yeah. I have a friend online. Her name is Jory Micah. Are you aware of Jory? I heard her on one of our favorite podcasts on the Heretic Happy Hour show. Yes. Cool. Cool. Okay. I, I'm just, I'll, I only bring her up because I'm so astounded that she can say the most innocuous of things mm-hmm. and she tolerates too much, I think, yes. but, but the level of, of vitriol 
and the level of outright hatred that comes at her mm-hmm. over saying something like crazy, like, hey, you know, the first person to report on the resurrection was Jesus was a woman. Right, right. If it wasn't for female evangelists, we might not know. And then there, and then it's just hate on top of hate on top of hate. So I just, I just thought that was interesting. I wondered if, if, if when you step outside of those circles where you feel affirmed and, and empowered, if you, if you encounter you know, I, I'll just call it bullshit. You kind of yeah. bullshit like that. Yeah. I, um, I, I realize I misspoke. <laughs> Jory, Jory was just signed with choir publishing. So she has not guested on here to Cappy Hour. I'm thinking of a different, a different, oh, a gotcha. different person, but I, okay. I do know who Jory is. Yes. And I'm so excited for her upcoming book with choir. So I have served, I've been so thankful. I've served in the Bible belt. I've served in the Midwest and I served in Long Island, New York as a chaplain. And I have, I've never, never felt treated any differently from people with penises. I mean, for male presenting humans, if I could use that word, like <laughs> I've, I've never felt any, yeah. And I've, I've been, I've been the boss of, of men. My friends are men well, and I work alongside men. I've, I've had bosses that are men and I've always felt respected and um, trusted and knew that um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Very, very thankful. So, and at the same time, I acknowledge that that's not everyone's story. So it's just Facebook trolls then. Yeah, I, I haven't experienced any of that either. <laughs> so, um, yeah, hi. Yeah, you have to curate. You have to curate your friends list carefully. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the the block button is your friend. Self care is important, yes. and so I show people the left foot of fellowship pretty often. If they get ugly on my page, it's like, no, nah, you got to go right. Now. And but- and my grandfather used to always say, my grandfather is a true, true Texan, <laughs> whatever that means. But he looks like God took Popeye and Tommy Lee Jones and mashed them together. And um, he's still he's still such a badass. He's eighty two, but he's like totally ripped, and he has the most beautiful Southern draw. And he always says, the older I get, and then he says this profound lesson that he's learned. And this, I'm aware that this might rock the boat and make some feel uncomfortable. But the older I get, speaking as Meg, not as my peepaw, the older I get, the more I am okay with giving others the gift of their experience. And if that means they need, they, for some, for some men and lots of women, I know too, that support this belief that only men should lead in spiritual settings, I have to believe that in some way that's going to be right for them until it's not, that it's serving them at this point and it's not my job to convert them or, or, or change their belief. That means the same thing. But I can show up in my power doing what God made me to do and by doing that, teaching them how to treat me. And um, if not, we don't play together. They play in a different relational system and different denominational system. And, and I choose to play in a different denominational system. And at the same time, I have tons of respect for my female friends that are staying in certain denominations on purpose, even though it is beating the shit out of them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. <laughs> They're staying to be a catalyst for other young girls. And that's, that's their experience. So more power to them. And so... But there's so many weird religious doctrine out there, as you know, both being leaders in the church at some level, yeah. that it's serving somebody. So I'm going to let it serve them, but it doesn't it doesn't serve me. So I don't choose to let it be part of my story. Well, that kind of kind of goes into another question is, uh, you know, in reading your book, 
you you uh, talk about different different aspects of your of your faith journey and different areas. And one of the things I, I found kind of interesting that and correct me if I'm wrong if this is not how you were meaning me to write, but it seems like at each step that's it's you are giving like levels of permission mm. to yourself to correct some misunderstandings of your place in the church or your place in the world. And so permission, you know, one of them was permission to have these tears of friendship, mm-hmm. right? Or tears of friendship's not the right word. Yeah. But, um, relationships. And, but I mean, right, relationships. And, but it just seems like throughout the story, it's like you learning to give you, you yourself permission to, to take back your power. Mm. to take back your your place in this world as yourself and it's it's empowering um i'm not uh i'm not an extrovert i'm not someone who uh is uh, i don't relate to that part of your story because i'm not that person but i definitely relate to the side of it where you at some point you you put so much of yourself into the church or so much of yourself into whatever uh that you lose yourself um, I think Nat could agree with me on this, and and you talk about this too. You spent so much time in the church that you start to lose your being, your yourself. I think we did it for different reasons, and we can get into that later if we want. As to you know, my the reasons I stayed in church for so long compared to what you were talking about. But can you talk a little bit about just this idea of like giving yourself permission to reconnect with yourself? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's similar to what Jason was sharing on your, on your premiere episode that it might not have, he used the word ego, that that was his motive 20 years ago for taking the pulpit, that he loved the high of the crowd loving him. And I, I think in a similar, in a similar way, I was, and this can happen in any career, I have to say that, but that I was so hungry to be, to be loved, to be affirmed. And I wanted people to know that I was the best. And I was seeking that, trying to prove and defend myself and seeking that love out um, through through ministry. And God, God brought a lot of good from that, as God does. God brings good from light from darkness. And so from that, that motive that might not have always been pure, there, there was definitely a divine calling there, but it was also trying to prove myself and find love. So in that, with that being my motivation, I did give so much power and thought that it was making me a good Christian, thought it was making me more pious because I was giving so much power to my fellow staff of ministers and the volunteers and community partners instead of tapping into the divine within me and owning my power as a, as a co-creator and listening to my own preferences that God gives us through the gift of free will. That's beautiful. Yeah, um, but because of because your story is so far in my in my experience a little a little unique, talk about the burnout aspect of it because as soon while you were talking, I'm taking notes and I, I I wrote down burnout and underlined it like three times. Talk about that. Talk about what role that plays in 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 whatever whatever deconstruction process happens. So I am still healing <laughs> from leaving the church staff and. So I want to be gentle with myself and with others as I talk about this. And I know you expect nothing less. I have, have, sorry, I offer too many disclaimers. I'm going to offer a disclaimer. There are people, they're out there, and I think you're one of them, (laughs) that um, 
are called to be, as you said, on the inside of the church. So this might not apply to what I'm going to say next is does not, won't, won't apply to everyone because they're, they, God made them to be inside the local church. And when I say local, you, never mind, you know what that means. In the Methodist world, local church means something different because, you know, in church world, we make up different words like God's self and right. <laughs> provenient right. and these words that don't exist. <laughs> um, so anyway, right. my burnout started, my, obviously my burnout came because my, I had two motives that were almost tied for ministry. One motive, if truth be told, was I'm, I'm, I, I want to be the best. I want to prove to everyone how successful I am at ministry. And the other motive that was kind of right under it, very close, but it was not on top for sure, was the motive of, I want to help kids of abusive or neglectful families meet a God that heals. And I think the best way for them to do that is through the supplemental family that the church can be at its best. So those those are my two motives for, for ministry. And my burnout happened because of the first one was taking the lead, obviously. And my burnout happened at the same time as I was vocationally evolving. So the first book came out and it began to open doors for for speaking engagements. And I began coaching ministers who were getting burnt out. (laughs) At the same time, I was feeling burnt out. (laughs) <laughs> and so I, those things, wow. yeah. Irony. Yeah. yeah, irony. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think bur- burnout started to peek its head as a question. And the question to me was sitting in meetings and being like, thinking, is this really ministry? Is what we're talking, I can already, I can already hear my passion coming through. Sorry. <laughs> no, don't, don't apologize. I, I, I began to think, is this really what Jesus meant? That question became louder and louder and louder and louder. And so I then, I reached out to, this is so funny, but (laughs) you talk about being an introvert. (laughs) This is such an extrovert thing to do. I emailed two authors slash speakers that I love and want, want, I feel like my career my my purpose on this earth (laughs) might emulate. I emailed them. And I emailed them both and I said, how did you know it was time to leave the church? And they both, big name people, big influence responded. They knew it and then they stayed. And they stayed so long after they knew it that they were not only burnt out spiritually and emotionally and mentally, but they they burned the whole thing down. Like they burned the bridges with everybody. They were jaded as they and so they suggested if you're feeling this nudge you do it now and and i should also mention another so i i took their advice i felt a nudge and then 6 weeks later had a conversation with my senior pastor and i i would say i'm still i am still for working on forgiving some that cause some hurt as some ministers do, but I realize I, it doesn't serve me to play the victim in, in moments where I felt taken advantage of in moments where I feel like I was working way too many hours, way underpaid, which is very true. But the truth is I played a role in my own burnout. I never stood up for myself and said, Hey, (laughs) 
I need to make more money or, Hey, I'm not going to be over this committee and this committee and this committee. Cause I feel that's not ministry and it's taking away from our programs that are really serving low-income families. So I, I, I led, I played a big role in my own burnout and I'm, I'm still healing from that. Do you, do you find that, um, cause I, I can relate to this. Um, if, if, do you find that one of the issues was the inability to say no? Oh, t- totally. When asked to take on roles. Um, and because, I mean, and in, in that the inability to say no is because you're, if you say yes, you are showing that you're faithful, mm-hmm. that you're showing that you care, um, that you are important. Um, I can't, I don't have a, a really a, a ministry example, but I did, I did local theater for a long time. And oh, cool. I was just the guy that you, you knew if you asked John to do some sound design work, cause that's what I did. He was going to say yes. It didn't matter how busy he was. Didn't matter how many things he was doing. You just knew John was going to say yes. Mm-hmm. And at some point you go, I can't say yes to all this anymore. Right. Because I'm, I'm losing the joy of what I was doing. Is that, does that resonate? Oh, hundred percent. So I guess working with that. And then like, I was thinking about something you wrote in the book and it just made me laugh because uh, it's talking about extroverts and introverts, right? (laughs) You made the comment about somebody, I don't remember the story exactly about someone basically proclaiming their introvertness to, to a group of people, I believe, or a group and uh, kept saying, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. And you're like, I'm like, you are not an introvert. Um, and I could so relate to that because I've been in those situations because I, uh, I am an introvert mm-hmm. and nobody would know it, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the, unless you are in my circle of friends, right? Outside of that, I am just considered the shy guy, right? Or rude because um, I don't, I don't approach, I don't approach conversations. I don't come over and go, Hey, I'm not talking to you because I'm an introvert. That, that would never even cross my mind to say, mm-hmm. And this is all just for nothing. There's no question connected to it, except I kept, I kept, <laughs> it kept replaying in my head. Is that that I, it made me laugh? That, that that part of your of the, of the book made me laugh. I was like, I so get that because if someone was to come up to to me and do that, it's like, well, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm like, no, you're not. You wouldn't be telling me this, <laughs> right? Oh, it's so true. And that's I'm glad you brought that up because it's such a good reminder of as we're all wired differently. Of course, there would on an individual level, of course there would be different ways of doing church too. If you, if you were to think about it, cause I think about being, being in love with and married to an introvert, how, how many ways we do church are very awkward for introverts and owning that. So what, and so sometimes I think yes. it'd be fun. I'll, I, I don't know if I'll make the time for it, but it would be, it would be fun <laughs> to do a case study of sorts of all these spiritual throughout church history the spiritual practices and aligning them with certain Myers-Briggs types. Like, of course, the I-N-T-J. Of course, like the, the, the those probably more wired, like, like my husband, like Garrett, like the monastic movement, the hermits that were alone and just in the word. And, and so, and then you could, you know, John Wesley um, yeah. taking a, out into the like field preaching, like definitely more of an extrovert thing to do. Like being with people in tent revivals and the encampment movement. Yeah. Definitely right. extrovert. But <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard, I have been in meetings where a pastor has said, 
introverts do not make good pastors because they're not charismatic enough behind the pulpit. And I was like, oh my goodness, what blasphemy, what heresy to to speak that you would think that God could only be portrayed through a certain personality type. It's just ridiculous. And I, I'm always, I'm always blown away by our limiting beliefs of what we think we can do based on our personality types. And instead of owning it, that we can show up differently with the energy and the, the frequency that God's given us and serve very well. Yeah. I got into a lot of trouble at staff meetings. I don't know about (laughs) you, but (laughs) I'd be like, cause I'm like, like I I would have, I've said stuff and just had like a whole table full of people look at me and go, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> I tell people sometimes I almost got fired from a job for a, for a reading of a Brian McLaren group. And that was my cue that it was time to go. Um, Cause you know, he was just way too liberal. He's one of them liberals. You got to say it from those right, guys. Right. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, what I, what I, what I wrote down while you were talking is how do you how do you come to terms with and obviously you left uh, you you left the church to pursue other things i i didn't leave the church you know right. but i left a church right and i feel like i lost as many relationships in that change matter of fact i'll tell you what the pastor told me and if he's listening to this podcast first i'd be shocked but second i'd be i mean every word of it so um, <laughs> he told me that he would rather i left the church than go to that guy's church Hmm. Wow. And so for Protestant, non-denominational people who seem like they're in constant competition with one another over a dying population of people who give a damn, right. they fight tooth and nail over audience. And so when I told him I was going to a, you know, a, who he saw as a competitor's church, um, man, he was livid. I, I think I would have been better off having just utterly left the church and become an apostate than for, you know, to do that to him. But yeah. One of the ways in which I'm, I'm curious what you think about how we do church, I, in my opinion, we, we have just got to reassess what that word even means mm-hmm. and how it actually how we actually practice this thing called church. So um, I'd love your input on what you think, you know, the church of the 21st and 22nd century, if, if it will survive, even what it will look like. Yeah. And I probably forgot to say this, that I do attend a a Methodist church in the same town, just not the one that I served at for 15 years. So I I have, I have not given up completely, but it's not part of my vocation to serve there anymore. And I agree with you 100% that redefining the word, which I know we've been doing forever in the church, in church history, we're always, which is great because that means we're growing, but it's still uncomfortable because innovation looks like destruction at first glance. But I toured a church in San Antonio, give Texas all the credit and glory. I toured a church, a Nazarene church in San Antonio last, it doesn't matter, last year, last January. And this church was doing so many things right. I I teared up with joy just to be, just to be on a tour of it. And what I mean by right is they began using the unused classrooms and spaces in their church because so many facilities are so big and underused, as you both know, they began using some of the unused classrooms as um, they as a shared workspace. So entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and people that work from home, they could come and find community and meals and work together in that church. And then the, the upstairs church, part of the church, those rooms were rented out to lawyers, 
therapist and um, a doctor. And because they they were close to the border, those that were coming in trying to get citizenship, they would go to this church and they would find all their needs met therapy, a lawyer and a doctor to help them. And then there was also within the church, a ministry of finding them housing. And that office was too. They, they, they brought in people who actually had the gifts and talents to do those things. <laughs> you can tell some bitterness there <laughs> from my past experience in ministry. They brought out, they brought <laughs> people that were actually trained to lead up these things, but it was housed in the church. So the church was embedded in, in, in the needs of the, in, in the needs of the community. And that, because of that, that made worship so much more powerful and healing because it wasn't about preference. Like what makes that song didn't get me going today. Like it wasn't about preference and style. It was about serving together and mourning together and coming together with the Holy Spirit in lamentations and remembering and celebrating and and gaining hope together as a community because they were They'd spent the whole week serving together and all the staff had been trained in trauma recovery. And so the pastor, like I was trained that it should take a method, it should take a pastor 24 hours a week to write a sermon. And to me, that's insanity. (laughs) If a sermon is around 15 minutes, exactly. That's crazy. (laughs) So crazy. And so here was this pastor. I'm not going out. 45 minutes. I know. It's like if it's within your talents and how God wired you, <laughs> you're not going to need 24 hours. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I, I loved how these ministers at this church, they were, they were tapping into other gifts and talents. Well, I want to, I want to kind of then just kind of move the conversation into what we were talking about with, um, I, I, I need to bring this up because I don't want to say this wrong because I, I love, I love, I love the way you say it you know, helping spiritually attuned go-getters, right? And that's kind of what you're, that's kind of where you're working, what you're working at right now, right? And um, so in that, and then I want to preface this by a couple things that I, I noticed in your book is one, and I don't know if this was intentional, but your voice, the way you write is is you. I mean, obviously it's intentional, it's you, right? And your extrovertness comes out in the book and your willingness to help and wanting to help. But a couple questions. Uh, the first one is how do you help specifically, I guess, women in ministry who are having a harder time or don't like, like we talked about, you didn't have that kind of, that kind of negative, uh, connection with church being, being a female, but, um, as you're helping other people with their, uh, with their, they're wanting to move forward with whatever they're doing in church, outside of church. How do you come about, how do you come at that? from from your perspective to help them. I feel I feel all of us definitely have limiting beliefs and they can be around our gender or our lack of education. That was a big one for me. I thought I couldn't teach anyone or write a book till I had a doctoral degree, which is asinine to think about now. I thought I couldn't teach people how to lead mindfulness exercises with kids of abusive or neglectful families until I had a degree in neuroscience. Like I had these stupid limiting beliefs that were just as strong as a limiting belief around my gender. So we, when, when I work, when I work with clients, we call it transcending filters. 
And so they, they come to the idea of wanting to write a book that is going to serve people. And that idea is being held hostage by a limiting belief or a filter that they have around their, like I said, like I said earlier, their talents, their view of money, their view of marketing, their view of self, their view of the uniqueness of the idea, their view that their target audience isn't out there, their view of their limiting belief around there won't be interest in my book. And so that is one of the, the first steps that we take when I work with uh, spiritually attuned go-getters in, in writing their book is naming and getting to the root of their limiting belief. That is usually the root of their writer's block as well. And another, another limiting belief is I can't say that that will rock the boat too much, but really their target audience is waiting for them to rock the boat and their target audience is excited to grow through their book because they bravely rocked the boat. And I know one of you shared that in Sunday school, I think it was John, when you were a kid, you got your, your parents were told you asked too many questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you, it sounds like you've been rocking the boat for a long time. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, um, the story, I, I didn't know this story until I was much older. Uh, my parents, for whatever reason, decided to shield me from this, this meeting that they had with the pastor. And they, they were, I think I talk about it too. They, they were, they were not like super like theological questions. They were just a young kid saying, hey, wait a minute, hold on. So you're telling me that in the beginning, there were only two people on this planet and they had kids. And then those kids married somebody. Who the hell did they marry? <laughs> because, you know, we have a different point of view of what that would look like or what that means now, right? And so me, like, I was like, well, okay, hold on. Someone someone married their sister, right? That's mm-hmm. weird. And, and And like you're saying, people who are maybe feel a calling to do their job, but maybe don't have the training or the, uh, the back, the, not the background, but the, uh, the permission to answer those questions. So you do, you get these moments where the, the Sunday school teacher goes to the pastor and is like, Hey, I, I'm not equipped to answer these questions. And then instead of saying, Hey, let's equip you to answer these questions. Let's help you. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's have a conversation with the child's parents and say, don't answer, don't ask questions. So all that to say, um, within this, within, within what you're doing, trying to help people kind of find their voice and kind of get, get their, you know, if they're writing a book, if they're wanting to start a podcast or whatever they're trying to do, how do you help them find their voice? I mean, what, what are some of the steps you do that helps them kind of break down those barriers that they've put up for themselves? Yes, 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 yes. There are some reflection journaling that we do together around where the story began, exploring the validity of that story, exploring how that story that might have served them in a relational system of their childhood that got shoved to their subconscious. And now every decision they make is undergirded with that subconscious belief that I'm not smart enough or I can't do it because I'm a girl. We get to the root of that and come to the conclusion of how it's might have been serving us then, but it's no longer serving us now. And it's all, it's, I've noticed with the, the spiritually attuned go-getters that I, I help write their books, that it is all interconnected. Big life transformation happens when people write the, the, the books on their heart, when they birth the idea that wants to come out of them. So yes, taking 
taking a deep look to the the root the root cause of our our limiting beliefs and that sometimes that is a, a guided journal sheet uh, a guided meditation together reevaluating how we show up in some relationships lots of sweaty palm conversations potentially <laughs> with the person that we're we're afraid to most yeah. of the time at writer's block at the deeper core of it there's there seems to be with all my clients one person one person that is the cause of the writer's block and there needs to be some forgiveness there needs to be a sweaty palm conversation around moving differently with that person there needs to be permission asked or there needs to be sometimes there's two different versions of the chapter written this version is if my dad example um this version is if my dad totally wholeheartedly supported me and loved me my whole life and was okay with knowing this part of my life and is cheering for me about this book and can't wait to buy it. And is it my first book signing? That's the headspace. I'm going to show up for this chapter. And this chapter is my dad isn't a fan of me writing this book and I'm going to write it from that headspace. So in feeling the difference, sitting in the difference of the two headspaces, feeling the sadness and also knowing that the sadness doesn't have to define us. So th those, those types of deep conversations and moments happen when we're, we are writing, we're writing books and I've been, I've been blown away. I've, I've been blown away at the, the, the types of authors that I am so blessed to work with that find me. They, none of them have been light subjects. They have been yeah. just, um, one is over writing a current client's helping churches create programs to serve those addicted to opioids. And another one is over, um, for, for, wow. yeah, exactly. And another one is over uh, forgiving an abuser from childhood and helping others recover from child abuse. Another one is, um, exploring the drag community and how the church can learn from the vulnerability and authenticity of the drag community. And, um, Another is helping women love their bodies more from a boudoir photographer in LA. And then I had another gentleman that reached out just yesterday that's writing a book as a Christian, what he learned from Buddha and how that helped him grow closer to God. And so I'm, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by nice. the type of the authors that I get, I get to help serve others through their books. I actually should have started with this. Um, I was, as you're talking, I'm like, I don't know if we've even defined what a spiritually attuned go-getter is. I mean, how, how would you yeah. define that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I am that, but maybe I am. You I don't know? You <laughs> I, if you have to ask, then you're not one, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, my, um, I, the, the second book, this, this will get to the answer, I promise. It birthed, a lot, a lot of book ideas birthed from questions. The, the writer wondering, huh? Why is that? Um, and the question that birthed the second book was, why the hell do so many Christian ministers struggle to have grit? Like I know so many that are lazy AF or <laughs> are afraid to own their ambition. They, or they, they settle for mediocrity and they're like, it's okay. We're not a business. We can suck. You know? <laughs> and, so, and, and then because they lack grit, they, they, they burn out so soon. 
So I began asking this question, <laughs> why, why is ambition, and Reese Witherspoon gets the credit for this quote, ambition is not a dirty word. But for so many Christians, this idea of having a competitive drive, having ambition, being confident, knowing your goals, selfishly chasing your goals, like those things were all natural to me. But so many in the church told me, no, be humble, play small, shrink back, as Marianne Williamson says. And I said, no. And I wanted to write a book based on that question. And that led to me question. finding, like my, yeah, it was awesome. My, my target audience, which was um, spiritually attuned go-getters. And what I mean by that is they, they are go-getters that are aware that they're not the only ones doing the go-getting. They are a co-creator with God and they show up to play full out, but God also shows up to play full out. And so they take naps and they meditate and they enjoy solitude. And sometimes they don't show up for podcast night because they want to go on a scooter ride with their daughter. So they are spiritually attuned go-getters in that way. And they, they don't play small, they don't shrink back. And their motive and their frequency is all about serving other people. So when they're, when they're, they, they don't grind and hustle like other entrepreneurs from a place of selfish motives, they grind and hustle and also take naps from a place of, I have this idea within me and it's there to serve other people. And I, 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 with God's help, God's showing up, I'm showing up. I'm also surrendering the outcome, but I'm going to work my ass off at the same time because I have this undeniable nudge, nudge to serve other people. So that, that's a spiritually attuned go-getter. Okay. Like I said, I should have asked that question first, but, uh, so uh, do you think that, so do you think that you are one? Uh, <laughs> I, I, you are, you are, <laughs> this, Good is, this is, this is me being uncomfortable. And, uh, I would say that I, I, I do relate to most of what you said. Um, I think that, um, I don't, I don't like to label myself as an introvert because I, I, I think people use sometimes those specifically introvert, uh, as a permission to shut themselves off from other people, which is a very true trait of introverts. I mean, there are times where we literally need to shut ourselves away from other people, but I think you know as well that we don't, we don't like spotlight, right? I don't like that I'm talking about it right now. Actually, my, my, mm -hmm. my stress level is going up just saying, you know, having sweaty this conversation palms. about, yeah, sweaty palms, um, about, you know, putting a spotlight on me as an introvert. I'm like, okay, well, no, we don't talk about this. But to answer your question, yes, I, I, I totally get that. I get where there is some kind of calling to help other people and you, and you, and you think you have a voice and you think it, it can, it can help somebody else. But the introvert side of me or the, the social anxiety part of me says, yeah, but who cares? Who, who's ever really gonna, whoever, uh, Nat and I are musicians also. So Nat and I have been in a band together at one point and we've been in bands. Um, and, uh, I play bass and, uh, do a lot of lead vocals. Um, but there was a point where. Uh, I was playing, we were playing, my band was playing pretty regularly in, in our area. Okay. I don't want anyone to think that we were famous. We were, we were, we were good. We were good within our County. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you were Eureka famous. I was Eureka. I was Humboldt County famous in, in California. You got a whole County. Damn. Yeah. Uh, but all that to say, 
<laughs> as more people came to see us play and I became better at my craft, you would think that I would become more comfortable at it, right? And it was the exact opposite. Mm. Um, as more people came to see us, I had even a bigger opportunity to let more people down. And so what did I do? How did I cover that? Shot of whiskey, two shots of whiskey, three shots of whiskey. That's what I had to do. Stopped at three? Um, uh, no, I did not mm-hmm. stop at three. I did not stop at three. I say quitter. Uh, this, this, is, this isn't a story about me, but... Uh, it is. Uh, I mean, it is a story about me, but this isn't, this isn't what this, this podcast is about. But let's, let's go ahead and just dump this all out. Uh, yes, please. At the point where, at, at the point where uh, we were doing a three-set show. So we were playing till about one o'clock in the morning. Wow. And I don't remember the third set because I am now blackout mm. drunk. That's when I was like, okay, I have a problem. And it's not, mm. it's not that I had a drinking problem per se. <laughs> I had a anxiety problem. But when I pulled myself out of that venue and changed the venue to uh, festivals, we started playing festivals instead of bars and uh, that atmosphere changed and I no longer had that, that same type of anxiety. So I think um, all that to say, that's what I, I kind of feel that you're that what what you're offering these people is a way to dig deeper into their psyche, into their into like what you say, their writer's block, right? Uh, I feel like I mean, is is that what is that what you're helping these people do? Is uh, try to try to find a way to get past those uncomfortable parts about themselves that says I'm not worthy. People aren't going to show up. I, I know in a book, it's kind of a different situation, right? People aren't going to buy the book. Uh, people aren't going to show up. People aren't going to like it. People are going to tell me I'm horrible. Um, and, and how, how or what, what's the tools you offer them? I mean, I don't want you to give away all of your secrets because I want people to come and, and work with you. But um, how, does that, how does that work out? So the first thing, as we, as we talked about, is we go into the deep work of naming the obstacle, why, why it hasn't been written yet. And for so many people, there is an echo. There seems to be repeating reasons coming up. And those reasons are, I don't think anyone will be interested. Who am I? Who am I to write over this subject? This subject's already been written over. Those, those are the main, those are the main ones. Those are the loudest ones. And then, then close to that would be time, but that, that really doesn't come up that much. The other reasons I gave are usually the obstacles. So nipping, nipping those in the bud, speaking to those and some things that come up for me is the, the beautiful lesson that we can find either in scripture or in the new age woo woo school of thought of quantum physics. And in scripture, I think it's first John one ten. Jesus is praying, thanking God for the oneness that they are one and praying that others will be one as well with them. And, and, and we get from this as good little Christians, the, the imagery of the body of Christ. So one beautiful lesson we take from that as divine co-creators is that whenever there is an idea bubbling up within us to be created, the only reason it's there (laughs) 
is because someone outside of us, another member of the body of Christ, or if you'll be willing to believe along with me, another member of the human family is, is desperately hungry for that. They're desperately hungry they're awaiting for you to come along as a trusted guide. Donald Miller talks about the author as the guide and building up the reader as the hero toward the journey of solving their problem. So the idea is only within you. Yes, to bring you joy, but equally as important, someone needs to be served by it because we're all connected as a body of Christ. We feel what others feel, whether you're a sensitive empath or not. And so unless as I love to tell my clients and other people I work with, unless you're wanting to start a GoFundMe campaign for full body laser hair removal, <laughs> unless <laughs> unless that's your idea, your idea is there to serve somebody. <laughs> so, so create it, create it now because people are desperate for it. So we, we quickly nip those filters in the bud, the filter about uniqueness of topic or of book or of interest. So there are six methods that we, that we use when we work, when I, when I work with spiritually attuned go-getters for, for their book and feel free um, to, to use this if it serves you. So we, we transcend, as I talked about, first and foremost, we transcend any filters around the self, the talents and their target market. So I am also a marketing coach. So we, we are writing the book from a place of, this thing is going to market itself and the target market will know just by reading the introduction or the back of the book on Amazon, if it's for them. Okay. Method number two, we, we set the writer up for success with a routine that honors his or her personality and life stage. So we, we set them up for success with a sustainable writing routine. Then we get in tune with the book. We believe that it's not just you, the author, me, the coach, and we don't, it's not just the two of us. We believe obviously that the Holy Spirit is at work within both of us. Then there's a third party that's invited to the table and it is the book itself. That the book, if we're really in tune with it, it'll start talking to both of us as crazy woo-woo as that sounds. It's true. The divine creation within us wants to guide us into who it wants to tell its story to and how it wants to tell it. So we get in tune with the book. Uh, method number four, we create a template for your book, an outline that is the most readable and retainable because we don't want to sell a book to someone that they're not going to remember what we're teaching them. And so based on neuroscience, re neuro neuroscientific research, there it is, and many years <laughs> of studying how the brain works in creating curriculum, we design an outline that's readable and based on how people best learn. And then method number five, we prune away, and this, this, these aren't in order. <laughs> this one especially is not in order. We prune away at the root causes of writer's block. And usually it's a lot deeper than just, I don't, I don't like going live to market. Well, tell me why you don't going live on, you don't like going live on Facebook. And so we get to the deep, as we talked about the root cause of writer's block. And then the sixth method is we capitalize on the expanded network of my, my niche mates. I, I work with choir publishing now to pick up authors. So my clients get submissions to choir and our recommendation. I work with a certified editor. So she edits the, the manuscript. So we go from idea to a napkin all the way to finished perfected manuscript that can either be self-published or published through a company. And I, I guide the author through every step of the way, whether they decide to work with choir, another Christian publishing house, or they decide to go create space self-publishing on Amazon. So we go all the way to the end together. And in six months, we do all, all of that in six months. Oh, wow. No, that's amazing. No, because it's, uh, 
I don't know. It, so much of this is overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of us that create content in different ways. And um, if you do it even a little bit well, always someone's like, oh, you know, when are you going to write your book? When are you going to write your book? Oh, you need to write a book. And so I think percolating in the back of a lot of people's minds is at least this idea of, okay, I need to maybe concretize some of it, maybe put some of this stuff down. But for I can speak for myself as a non a non-introvert. I'm somewhere between, I'm not an extrovert, although maybe, maybe I am. But anyway, I'm more extroverted than not. However, there are still voices in my head that suck. And there are still voices in my head that yell out fraud, that still yell out imposter, you know, mm. and, 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 and your, you know, the, the, the accusation in my brain is you're just going to go and do the things that you now criticize other people for doing. And so is a, is a, is a tool in, in the tool belt, I guess, some way to assess that level of shame or guilt or trauma or whatever that, that, that prevents people from being their authentic selves and ignoring the voices that are, that are illegitimate, you know? I'm sitting with your question and making sure I'm understanding it. Is it a tool? Because I want to honor what you said. Is it a tool to check in with where these voices are coming from? Like whose voice it is that is saying fraud? Okay, that's a deeper question then. Sure. Sure. That's good. Where is that voice coming from? That's a good question. And maybe that requires some digging, you know, some personal you know, maybe some, some, some work, you know, to say, okay, well, why does, mm-hmm. why does that voice there, you know, why, what, you know, fr- from what does that spring or whatever? And also I'm, I'm feeling what's coming up for me is another very pastoral thing to say, isn't it? It's like, unpack that a little more. <laughs> I'm feeling it coming up for me, but that's <laughs> um, the other thing I, I found that is a helpful tool is to read, redefine, we talk about redefining church, to also redefine marketing. And self-promotion is should be awkward and should be slimy because that's not real marketing. That's literally promoting the self. But authentic marketing really is a form of ministry when it's based on knowing your target audience, like who God is calling you to serve right now with this book, knowing it's okay if that changes with book number two, but being so clear on your target market that you know their values, their needs, their problems, their fears, and you want to serve them. So you write all of your marketing for your book or your blog or your podcast is about them and the result that you're going to help them get as a trusted guide and how you're going to build them up as the hero of their own story, as Donald Miller says. So good marketing says nothing about me. (laughs) It says everything about my heart has hurt for my target reader. And I'm serving that reader with this, with this book. And I'm going to, I'm going to market from that, from that place. And authentic marketing is also about establishing authentic relationships with those you are called to serve. So when, when authors that I work with, when they start showing up in organic social media marketing from that lens, marketing isn't awkward anymore. (laughs) It's enjoyable. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, um, it's holy, holy work. And I, I, something else you were saying earlier made me think of the concept of, of shadow work. And it sounds very scary, (laughs) but it's not, I'm sure you've heard of shadow work before. So one of my big blocks that my business coach had to help me get over 
before the second book came out was I was thinking, and now I get the honor to walk my own clients through this. I had this fear. What if people think I want attention? What if people know I want attention? <laughs> and that's, that's a sign of shadow work. And my, my coach explained it so, so beautifully to me. And he, he's, he then said, what are you, what are you drawing attention to? And I, well, well, my, my book and what does your book do? It, it serves spiritually attuned go-getters in taking their power back from louder Christians in their life. And then he said, wouldn't that make the world a better place if there was attention drawn to that? <laughs> oh yeah, because <laughs> that would, I guess that would. And so isn't it, isn't it, isn't it a good thing that you want attention on this service? Oh yeah, I guess it is. And so me diving into my shadow work of, I hope no one finds out that I really like attention because once I owned that, my, my book was able to get to bestseller because I did the deep work. I did the shadow work of, I, I do, I want this book to have attention because I want more holy rollers <laughs> to stand in their power and, <laughs> and take their power back from Christians. So the, so shadow, shadow work is another, another thing that we get to dive into when we're, I'm working with people in their books. That's amazing. Yeah. You've inspired me, Meg. So I appreciate that very much. I, oh, I hope so. I am. Um, no, you really have. It's a, uh, I mean. Ditto. Your show inspires me. I'm, I'm still a, I'm still, I'm still lazy AF, so I'm probably not going to do anything, but um, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, I love it. I'm, I'm taking notes furiously, by the way, over here. This is why you see me over here. I'm, I'm taking notes and because uh, it reminds me so much and, and I could, I honestly, I could talk to you for another hour, but uh, it, it reminds me of an experience that I had and I'll, I'll drop this and then I, I think I'm, I'm, yeah, it might just be enough. But um, anyway, I had, I had this experience and one, one of those things that I've figured out is this. Childhood trauma is awful and formative and does things to you, but adult trauma sucks too, right? Yeah. So, so much of, so, so often we go, well, what happened to you as a child? And you go, you know, what happened to me as a 40 year old actually sucked pretty bad too. And I had an experience where um, somebody who I loved and who I thought, thought well of me comes back to me through another, somebody else and the details of it are important, but really attacking my character. And you know mm -hmm. what? I take that back. Not my character attacking my personality, hmm. you know? So now I'm too extroverted. Now I am just the guy who, who needs attention. And now I have, and it was, it's shocking to me how that ate at my psyche for the next two or three years. It wrecked my relationship with that person. Um, we've never quite recovered from it because what they attacked wasn't something I said. It wasn't an action that I took. It was me. Like, you at the very core of who you are. And I found myself for like a year almost after that, like every situation I'm in that's social, I'm like, oh, am I being that guy? Am I, you know, and I, so I shrink away from who I am and I'm, 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 I'm gregarious and I'm this, and I like to tell stories and I do all this stuff. And I'm, you know, and, and I thought that was authentically who I was. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm questioning. It's just how other people see me. And now I don't want to be that guy anymore. So I, I, I'm, I'm working through it. You know, I'm still, I'm almost 50 and I'm, I'm getting over it, but you can, I think you can, maybe you can heal the, hear the pain in my voice. Like even now it's like, that bothers me. You know what I mean? Like it still bothers me that, that, um, that, that affects the way in which sometimes I interact with the world. And I feel like I have to apologize for the fact that I just told a story that was probably too long. Even now I want to go, Hey, I've, I've, I've said too much. I've gone too long. <laughs> but when I talk to someone like you, 
I start to, I, I start to get that inkling that, you know, we, uh, we're allowed to lean into who we are, you know, for, for whatever that is and own it and celebrate it. And we ought to be doing that for other people as well. So whatever John's book ends up being, it will serve people to lean into who they are, right? And learn to accept themselves and love themselves and then be able to love other people better. And isn't that the point of all of this? Right. Yes. And I know, I know we are getting ready to close the curtain on this show. And what also comes up to me is, and we're not taught this in church and we probably should be more than we are. I know, I think I could point, I could pull out some addresses of scripture that hint toward this, but I won't Paul and Barnabas, all I'm going to say, um, but right. so that's your feet at the door. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this idea that as we, <laughs> as we evolve and grow, and it sounds like that's what you were doing in that time in your life, we will outgrow people. We will outgrow relationships. And that sounds like that's not that you need me to say this. And it sounds like that story says more about that person than it does you. And you get to give him the gift of his experience, dust your feet at the door and open the door for other more positive relationships as you've done to come in um, while also acknowledging that sucked and was painful. No, you're hundred percent right. I, I wish we didn't have to shut it down. If I didn't have a, some place I had to go, I would probably no, keep I have, a, I have a lunch date with my husband. So I'm the same way. Okay. I, <laughs> so I have, I have a hard out as I'm stealing Brad's line, by the way. Um, we're so big time now. We can say stuff like, I'm sorry, I have a hard out at 1230, John. So I'm going to have to go. Um, but, um, so every, every, every guest that comes on, I steal a little bit of their shtick and go, Hey, they're pros. I'll steal that. So, um, I'll, totally. I will have inevitably I will have gleaned something from you as well, but I, for one, am man, what a, what a cool conversation and unlike anything we've had in five episodes. So that's the beauty of it is every person that comes on brings this utterly unique perspective and something new to the table to serve. Um, I will have that in the forefront of my mind, by the way, Meg, for a while. What are we doing here? What is the, who are we serving and that actually, that's a fantastic question to put at the front of anything that you're endeavoring to do is, okay, well, what's the, not just the target audience, but who, what, do, what do you hope to provide for them? How do we serve you? And mm -hmm. one of the things I think we allow people to do is ask questions that, you know, sometimes just make people uncomfortable. And so thank you for that. You've came, you have come in and you've left your mark. And I appreciate that. That's really awesome. John, I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you close it down. Do your thing, brother. Do my thing. Wow. This becomes the thing. You know that. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Hey, were you leaning real close? You're like, hey, if you like what you heard, um, <laughs> check us out on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, I, I, I just need to uh, agree with Nat that um, we are just beyond ecstatic that you were willing to come on and talk with us about this stuff and um, really enjoy this conversation. Uh, I just want to make sure that everyone knows who wants to be able to get in touch with you, how, how to best get in touch with you. Yes. Yes. Hit me up on the Instagram by my full legal name, Meggie Lee underscore Calvin and friends call me Meg, but a Meggie Lee underscore Calvin, very Southern. And then head over to MegCalvin.com and you can get the first chapter of I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. You can get that first chapter for free just by going to MegCalvin.com. You can give it a little test drive before it sits on your coffee table. <laughs> I, I will. I will just put my own little ten, uh, my my two cents worth on this, and just say, don't even worry about getting the first chapter. Just go buy the book. Just buy the book, man. 
wow. reading the the subtitle, I was like, I'm not really sure this church, uh, this book is for me. And uh, by the end of the book, I was like, oh no, it is. This oh. is definitely for me. And uh, so I'm just going to tell people, don't, 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 you don't need the first chapter. Just go buy the book. It's, it's a great book. Run. Run, don't walk. Get to your nearest retailer. I'm, I'm so honored that it, it touched you that way. And I, I'm, I'm equally as excited for your upcoming book whenever the time is yeah. right. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, no, no, stop doing I'm that. Sorry, yes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, It'll I'm happen. sorry. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you again very much. And uh, we, we just appreciate you coming on. So uh, have a good rest of your day. And uh, again, thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.